0: Hey everybody, it's Connor again from the HooperCast. It's time for another daily show because I feel like it. Yeah, I got a little bit of time. It's Wednesday night. Some stories have happened in the film news world, um, or at least what we might refer to as a fraction of a story. So I'm going to tell you about it and um, ooh, turn these <clears throat> headphones down just a little bit, get myself out of my own head. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about some of these stories or Whatever they are, links, you can decide whether or not there's an actual story there. Let's get warmed up tonight. Um, Netflix joins the Motion Picture Association of America, otherwise known as the MPAA. This is on TechCrunch.com. Netflix is the first internet streaming service to join the MPAA. Um, To regular moviegoers, the MPAA is... Probably best known, to the extent it's known at all, for its occasionally mystifying rating system, but the group also actively lobbies for the studios on a range of issues. The news underlines the ways in which Netflix is increasingly becoming a part of the Hollywood establishment. The company recently departed another trade group, the Internet Association, or... um, at least find its interests align with that establishment. This comes just a few hours after Netflix scored a a record 15 Oscar nominations, including its first for best picture. In fact, Politico notes that Netflix and Amazon have already been pushing alongside MPAA members for anti-piracy measures as part of the Alliance for Creativity and Entertainment. Um... Yeah, I'm not really sure what this means. Probably nothing. This to me, like I read this, you know, and it basically means nothing. I don't know if the NPA will begin rating um their movies. I'm supposing they are if they're gonna show theatrically at all. Um <clears throat> which is an issue that Netflix is touchy about. One Netflix practice that remains controversial is its resistance to windowing, in other words, giving its films an exclusive theatrical release Before making them available for streaming, while the company has softened its stance somewhat, allowing Roma and other titles to have a brief period of theatrical exclusivity, this wasn't enough for the major theater change, which refused to show the films. However, the MPAA mostly stays out of those discussions. So, yeah, what could this mean? Who knows? Um, Probably nothing for the average um, movie watcher or Netflix user. Um, Just pointing it out because it happened, so... If you're keeping tabs on Netflix and the goings on, that's what they're doing. Um, Let's keep it on streaming real quick. This is big news. Dustin sent me this story. This is on gizmodo.com. Hulu is cutting the price of its cheapest plan and increasing the cost of live TV. Excuse me. The basic story here is that um, after Netflix raised its prices a couple dollars about a week ago, its competitor Hulu is running the other direction saying, "Ooh, here's a chance to get people in. But the the, fact, the point of this article is to tell you it's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? Um, Hulu has just announced that its cheapest subscription plan price will drop to $6 a month, two whole dollars less than the current 8 Dollar price. That said, Hulu's more expensive, no commercial plan will stay at its current $12 price. The same holds true for the Hulu-Spotify combo at $13, but that sweet, sweet $2 discount won't be born of Hulu's generosity and kindness. It's planning on hiking the price of its Hulu with live TV service from $45 to, from up to $45 from the current $40. To make the pill easier to swallow, Hulu is lowering the price for add-ons for its live TV service. For example, its enhanced DVR and expanded multi-screen option will drop to $10 from $15. Start to happen February 26th or within your next billing cycle. Um, This comes just about a week after Netflix uh, hiked up its prices. It's hard to know what's actually going to happen in the future because of this um it's hard to say if hulu's price slashing is a direct attempt to lure viewers away from the competition there's no denying it's growing the service says it saw a 48 percent annual increase to 25 million subscribers in 2018 netflix still has more than 58 million but it'll be interesting to see how the competition shakes out baby um yeah again yeah we all know that netflix is the largest one for now until disney arrives on the scene <clears throat> um But Hulu's a solid one. Uh, Most of what Dustin reviews on our show ends up coming from Hulu. And it's always like, man, I can't get that thing anywhere else. So um, Hulu tends to have a good track record with interesting movies on its catalog. As many as go to Netflix and Amazon, Hulu might be pretty good with newer, newer releases. I'm not sure if it's part of those deals they have with TV with other studios where, oh, excuse me where they can get TV shows soon after they air. I don't know if they have a similar sort of deal set up with these places. Um, But, man, I'm telling you what, dude, that kind of makes me want to subscribe to Hulu. I mean, it's going to go down to $6 a month. And I don't mind commercials. You know, I don't mind them before a movie. I don't know if they break in with um, commercials during a movie. I don't think they would. I know between TV shows they've got some commercials, maybe a few ads before the thing starts, but that's okay. That's okay with me. I mean, especially if the no commercial plan is now double the commercial plan, I'll save $6 a month and just watch some ads. I don't care. I don't mind ads there. I mean, as long as they're not, you know, excessive to me, it's just part of digesting, you know, cheap or free content. I mean, that's, that's what I signed up for. It's what I I, I roll the dice like that. I'm real dangerous. I don't know, so yeah, if you're a r if you didn't know that already and uh maybe if you're seeing this as your you know window into oh maybe I should try hulu like first of all, they've got like a free week, you can already try it, but if you wanna get on Hulu and check out what it's about, <clears throat> might be a good time to do it because it's the price just dropped two dollars uh for the um for the lowest tier, pretty cool stuff <clears throat> all right, um. I'm gonna go into some uh just real quick casting news. Um, for those who didn't know, there are they made a they are making a prequel film to the Sopranos. Um, this is something I've been against ever since they started talking about it, you know, ten years ago or whatever. Like, oh, there should be a Sopranos film. And everyone's like, No, let's let the show be the show and let it end how it ended and all that stuff. And then they're like, Oh, it's gonna be a prequel one. You know, the more it started becoming a thing, the more it was like it's it's gonna be a prequel. I was like, Well that sounds even worse. You know like a young, what, young Tony, young Pauly, young big pussy, Uh, you know, a younger um, Uncle Junior, like, come on, all these characters, you're just going to put them all younger? <clears throat> Who's going to play Tony Soprano? Well, they have cast young Tony Soprano and the role, the actor who is going to play young Tony Soprano, the younger version of Tony Soprano made famous and iconically played perfectly by James Gandolfini is Michael Gandolfini. That's right. James Gandolfini's son will play younger version of Tony Soprano. The film is called The Mini Saints of Newark. Um <clears throat> James Gandolfini, of course, originated the role of the crime family boss for the groundbreaking HBO series, which collected dozens of awards during its run from 1999 to 2007 and celebrated its 20-year anniversary this month. He died unexpectedly in 2013 at the age of 51. Uh, Michael Gandolfini said in a statement to the la times on wednesday today it's a profound honor to continue my dad's legacy while stepping into the shoes of a young tony soprano i'm thrilled that i'm going to have the opportunity to work with david chase and the incredible company of talent he has assembled for the many saints of newark so if you just in case you thought like why they owe the cast of son nepotism he is an actor he stars on hbo's the deuce um got a good relationship with hbo i'm assuming with david chase obviously um Let's see. Um, the prequel will be set amid the deadly Newark riots that erupted between rival Italian and African-American mobsters in the 1960s. Some beloved characters in the television series are also expected to reappear. Um, also starring Alessandro Nivola, Vera Farmiga, John Bernthal, Billy Magnussen, and Corey Stoll. Oh, that's some good people. I didn't know the other casting news. Uh, John Bernthal is the Punisher, or Shane from The Walking Dead, if you don't know who he is. Vera Farmiga, you've seen her in a lot of things. Um um, but, uh, God, she was just recently in green book. Wasn't she? Um, Vera Farmiga is, uh, is in, um, Bates motel. Uh, the departed Google Vera Farmiga. You've seen her before and I guarantee you like her. I don't know who Billy Magnuson is, but Corey stoll Uh, he's the guy from, um, house of cards and he played Darren Cross in Ant-Man. Um, he's, you know, the yellow jacket. Corey Stoll's is a great actor. Sopranos creator, David chase will again, co-write and co-produce the ensemble drama with Lawrence Connor. The film will be directed by Emmy winner, Alan Taylor. Ooh Oh, boy. The film will be directed by Emmy winner Alan Taylor, who has helmed several episodes of The Sopranos, HBO's fantasy epic Game of Thrones, and Thor The Dark World, arguably the worst Marvel movie of their 22-film lineup. That last line was not in the article. That's ad-libbed by myself. That is my opinion. It's just generic. But you could argue that this sort of thing, you know, that Thor The Dark World was just not Alan Taylor's strong suit, and he just sort of went for the money. Um, I mean, the notoriety, whatever. But you know, he's a friend of the Sopranos and obviously does many um, episodes of Game of Thrones. So um, hopefully he can direct this movie. Um, honestly, like when I first saw the news of Michael Gandolfini playing young Tony Soprano, I was like, oh, great. But then I thought, well, it's actually perfect because it's going to be hard to see anybody who isn't, you know, the likeness of James Gandolfini playing Tony Soprano. You just you can't just cast someone else in that role and expect us and expect me to believe that that's Tony Soprano. It's such an iconic character to me, and it's one of those where you just—it's sort of like getting someone else to play Tony Stark. It's like I—I I just would have a hard time, you know, seeing somebody else taking on this character, even at a younger age, you know. Um, and you want me to believe that this is, you know, that this is him. It's gonna be—it's gonna be tough, but you've cast Michael Ganolfini, who looks a lot like his father, and consequently looks a lot like Tony Soprano. It's actually perfect casting. Now, of course, the downside to this is, okay, how good of an actor is he? How good will he be playing Tony? Now, granted, this predates a lot of Tony's, a lot of what's going on with Tony as a character growing, uh, you know, in the actual Sopranos, where they dealing with being the boss and dealing with these, um, these blackouts he has and family stress, you know, there's a whole other laundry list of things going on for Tony Soprano in this prequel movie. That's not going to be, you know, anything like what he dealt with in the Soprano show. So it's not like, you know, it's not like Michael Gandolfini is going to be Tony going to therapy or Tony arguing with Carmela or Tony, you know, deal, you know, dealing with, um, you know, how to manage his crew. You know, this isn't, this isn't that this is Tony being at the bottom of the totem pole and Tony be a lot more impulsive and um, aggressive. It's still him dealing with his mother, but this, remember, this is a whole different area of Tony Soprano's life. Our cells change over every seven years, but at the end of a seven year span, I think they say that all of your cells have turned over in your body um, and been replaced by new ones. You are effectively a different person and anybody who's grown up at all and anyone who's over the age of 30 can tell you that, oh, I'm a completely different person than I was when I got out of college. I'm turning 30 this year and I can tell you that's exactly how I feel. I feel like I'm a completely different person in a lot of ways. Like There's there's core parts of my personality that are just there and I'm finally being able to recognize coming back. But there's a lot of things about me that are just completely different than how I used to be. And that's life experience, but biologically, that's part of it. Just, you just got different parts in you. Now, it will be interesting to watch. Um, hopefully, he does a good job. Um, obviously, you know, um, uh, oh God, what's Ice Cube's real name? (sighs) O'Shea Jackson. Um, so when they cast O'Shea Jackson Jr. to play Ice Cube in, um, Straight of Compton, it's like, well, at least he looks like Ice Cube. It's gonna be hard to find someone to play Ice Cube. You know, everyone in that movie was perfectly cast, but, you know, including the casting of Ice Cube's actual son to play his dad. And he was good as Ice Cube. But then you wonder like, oh, well, you know. Well, naturally. That's just like a win win. He looks like him. He can play the part to play the part. Perfect. So this is actually a really nice way, um, to to keep to keep the integrity with these characters by casting Michael Gandolfini. So good for him, good for the movie, good for David Chase. I'm actually now one step closer to actually seeing this film. <clears throat> so there we go. All right. Also in film news, how long has this recording been going? I don't think it's even really well, it's going, but doesn't have a counter on it. That's weird. It usually does. Okay. Well, what if I bring it over here? Okay. I don't know why it's not counting. Forget it. I'm going to keep going. Over on CNN by Sandra Gonzalez and Chloe Mellis, director Brian Singer responds to new sexual abuse allegations. This is something I haven't talked about at all. It's been a long odyssey, so I'm just going to read a lot of this piece. Um, Oh, God, not verbatim. This is long. Damn, CNN. You always got to be over long and shit. Director Brian Singer has responded to new allegations of sexual assault and misconduct with a statement attacking the people and publication behind the latest report, which was published in The Atlantic on Wednesday. That's today. Singer said in a statement via Representative, quote, the last time I posted about this subject, Esquire magazine was preparing to publish an article written by a homophobic journalist who has a bizarre obsession with me dating back to 1997. After careful fact-checking and in consideration to the lack of credible sources, Esquire chose not to publish this piece of vendetta journalism. That didn't stop this writer from selling it to The Atlantic. It's sad that The Atlantic would stoop to the low standard of journalistic integrity. The Atlantic piece written by Alex French and Maximilian Potter, it's a cool name, Maximilian Potter, details four new alleged accounts from men who had not spoken publicly about their experiences and chronicles accusations against Singer that first began emerging in 2014. Singer did not clarify to which writer he was referring in his statement or explain his claim of homophobia. I mean, if I were Brian Singer, I would lean heavily into the claims of homophobia if I were accused of such a thing. One, if he's guilty, I would deny, deny, deny. So if he's denying, he's got good ammunition. He's going to play the gay card. And that's fine. And if he's telling the truth, well, then obviously it's the truth. I don't, it's really their word against his. You know, they say they've got these witnesses and these victims coming forward. Brian Singer says, yep, it's bullshit. These people are obsessed with me. They've been obsessed with me for 20 years. I didn't do that. In a statement, French and Potter said, quote, We feel fortunate that the Atlantic decided to work with us, and we are grateful that the piece has gone through the Atlantic's thoughtful editorial process, which included another rigorous fact check and robust legal vetting. We are most grateful that the alleged victims now have a chance to be heard, and we hope the substance of their allegations remains the focus. French and Potter said their reporting began at Esquire and went through the publication's editorial process eventually approved for publication but never published we do not know why they said in their report, which took 12 months and involved more than 50 sources, three new stories are told by men who chose to remain anonymous. Two of the men say they had sex with Singer when they were underage. Another man alleges a sexual encounter with Singer, but the man is unsure of his age at the time. The age of consent in California is 18. The Atlantic also spoke to an alleged victim named Victor Valdivinos, who says he was molested on the set of apt pupil by Singer in 1997 when Valdovinos was 13, CNN has not independently identified the anonymous victims or been able to verify their claims. What? Wait a second. CNN has not independently identified the anonymous victims or been able to verify their claims. Well, then how do you know it's true? CNN's attempts to reach Valdivinos have been unsuccessful. Singer, through his attorney, claimed he did not know Valdivinos and denied the accusation, The Atlantic reported. Singer added in his statement, quote, again, I'm forced to reiterate that this story rehashes claims from bogus lawsuits filed by a disreputable cast of individuals willing to lie for money or attention. And it's no surprise that with Bohemian Rhapsody being an award-winning hit, this homophobic smear piece has been conveniently timed to take advantage of its success. Um, the 2014 lawsuit that was the first sexual assault allegation Singer faced was eventually withdrawn by the accuser Um, oh good lord this is a mess Um, Singer was fired from the film uh, from sorry this is weird Oh boy. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I don't know what to think of this. I, it's, it's always hard to tell. This is why you just can't know until you actually know something. Because part of you, the instinct is to go, well, who do I believe? Well, I gotta pick somebody. No, you don't. You don't have to pick anybody because you don't know. If Brian Singer were straight, and all of these accusers were, accusers were women, I feel like there'd be the, 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 the process would be moving along a little bit more right now. And you know, what if Brian singer were a woman and these were a bunch of men? Would it even be given the time of day? It seems like male victims of sexual assault by women, pretty narrow margin, I think it still exists. but I feel like equal, victims are not given an equal voice. I think it's almost like you have to fit this ideal profile of a victim. And I know that some people might say, no, you don't. It's like, no, I I agree that you shouldn't have to fit a profile, but I feel like culturally the society still demands some sort of standard for what qualifies as victimhood. You know, um, I don't know what's going on here. I know that I have a usual suspects poster up in my office, and now with Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer's uh, sexual abuse, uh, troubles. I'm just thinking, like, man, I don't know if I can keep this poster up. <laughs> I love the usual suspects. It's a great film, but it's hard to look at that poster now and not realize, like, huh? Director and a star, both probably while making this film, allegedly were up to some horrible things. So I don't know. I mean, you want to give voice to the victims, and so if these are credible claims, then it's you know it's horrible, and singers should face charges. Um, but if they're BS. Then those people should have to you know pay in some way. Um, the fact though that the story was researched for a year, 50 sources, um, four victims or four plus victims um, you know, and then the two different publications vetted the story and only one chose to run it. you know objectively I would I would feel like well I'm sure that the journalists are telling the truth then. Now, I'm not a rah-rah journalism guy. I'm, I, I work in, in some capacity for the news, but I have a horrible opinion of the press. It's got nothing to do with Donald Trump. It's all about people wanting to get clicks. And so people just, yeah, a little bit lazy with the facts sometimes. Look what just happened with this uh, these the commenting uh, Catholic school kids. We saw a video. We thought that was the way it was. And then it turns out that's not the way it was. And only a couple of journalists actually apologized and said, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun. The rest of them just deleted tweets like a bunch of coward ass bitches. Okay. So I don't have a high opinion of journalism as a default. I'm not, and I don't, I'm, I'm not um, aggressive. I have no animosity towards journalists. I just, it's been a saying for a long time, long before the Trump administration, long before the Bush administration. It's always just been, you can't believe everything you read. And that phrase got morphed into you cannot believe everything you read on the internet because just anybody can write shit. Anonymity runs rampant. So many people can claim so many things without ever having to be found. Now, journalism still exists though. The way that they vet sources remains the same. They look into your credentials, your credibility, the facts, the timeline that you are trying to establish. They corroborate it. See if it lines up with other shit. Cops have been doing this for decades The FBI, I mean, that is how people verify truth. There are methods. And journalists know how to do that. Good journalists know how to do that. So I'm inclined to believe the report. But I also definitely can recognize there's a chance that this is all bullshit. And that people are out to capitalize on the success of Bohemian Rhapsody and to smear Brian Singer. But I also ask, why? Why, though? But why you? So you know just because someone denies something doesn't mean it didn't happen now by the same token just because somebody just because just because something may have happened didn't doesn't mean that it did happen yeah he may have done that thing that he may have done those things to those people but he also might not have done it and until we actually know you really shouldn't rush to judgment I don't know. It's a horrible situation. Hope it gets resolved soon because all this ambiguity just makes everyone nervous and bite their fingernails and go, oh my God, who's guilty? We've been talking about this for years. We still don't know the, that, the truth. And the, you know, we were, we were happy not knowing it happened and not knowing the truth that way. But now that we know something happened and somebody's lying, we want to know who because we have all this anxiety about it. Let's hurry up and get this nipped in the butt. I want to know what happened. <laughs> just hurry and relieve the tension for me, please. So I can go back to enjoying can I, can I enjoy these movies or should I not enjoy these movies? So for me, it's like, it's like pending litigation or whatever, like waiting for your sentence to come down. You know, you're watching a movie. You want to watch like X-Men you go, Oh God, you know, Brian Singer really did a great job with it. Oh, but I don't want to say good things about him. Cause he's like under investigate. Oh God, I wish I knew the conclusion. Cause I want to know whether or not I can like this film or not. <laughs> Boy. Hope that gets uh, figured out soon, both for the victim's sake and for Brian's sake. Whoever's innocent here, for their sake, I want this story wrapped up. Let's, come on. A couple more stories here tonight. Here's one I'm not really going to talk too much about because I did not see Green Book. The article's on the New York Times. I'm not, you know... Why do the Oscars keep falling for racial reconciliation fantasies in many Oscar bait movies, interracial friendships, come with a paycheck and follow the white character's journey to enlightenment? So they're complaining about Green Green Book. He, Wesley Morris is. Um, (sighs) 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 Not knowing what these movies were about didn't mean it wasn't clear what they were about. They symbolize a style. And here, I'll just read the first four paragraphs before it just to establish this. Driving Miss Daisy is the sort of movie you know before you see it. The whole thing is right there on the poster while white Jessica Tandy is giving Black Morgan Freeman a stern look and he looks amused by her sternness. They're framed in a rearview mirror which occupies only about 20% of the space. You can make out his chauffeur's cap and that she's in the back seat. The rest is three actors' names, a tagline, a title, tiny credits, and white space. That rear view mirror image isn't a still from the movie, but a warmly painted rendering of one, this vague nuzzling of Norman Rockwell Americana, and its warmth evokes a very particular past. If you've ever seen the packaging for a cream of wheat or a certain brand of rice, I think he's talking about Uncle Ben, uh, you've even seen some Shirley Temple movies, you know how, you knew how Miss Daisy would be driven, gladly. As movie posters go, it's ingenu- ingeniously concise, but whoever designed it knew the, con- the concision was possible because we'd know the shorthand of an internal of an internal racial dynamic. I got off the subway last month and saw a billboard of Black Kevin Hart riding on the back of white Brian Cranston's motorized wheelchair. They're both ecstatic, and maybe they're obligated to be. Their movie is called The Upside. A few months before that, I was out getting a coffee when I saw a long, sexy billboard of white Vigo Mortensen driving... Black Mahershala Alley in a minty blue car for a movie called Green Book. Not knowing what these movies were about didn't mean it wasn't clear what they were about. They symbolize a style of American storytelling in which the wheels of interracial friendship are greased by employment, in which prolonged exposure to the black half of the duo enhances the humanity of his white, frequently racist counterpart. All the optimism of racial, racial progress, from desegregation to integration to equality to something like true companionship, is stipulated by terms of service. Thirty years separate Driving Miss Daisy from these two new films, but how much time has passed, really? The bond in all three is conditionally transactional possible only if it's mediated by money. The upside has the rich, quadriplegic author Philip Lacoste, Cranston, hire an ex-con named Dell Scott, Hart, to be his life auxiliary. Green Book reverses the races so that some white muscle, Mortensen, drives the black pianist Don Shirley, Ali, to gigs throughout the Deep South in the 1960s. It's the Upside Down. These pay-for-playmate Transactions are a modern pastime different from an entire history of popular culture that simply required black actors to serve white stars without even the illusion of friendship. It was really only possible in the post-integration America, possible after Sidney Poitier made black stardom loosely feasible for the white studios, possible after the moral and legal adjustments won during the civil rights movements, possible after the political recriminations of the black power and black exploitation eras let black people regularly frolic among themselves for the first time since the invention of the Hollywood movie... Possible, basically, only in the 1980s, after the movements had more or less subsided, and capitalism and jockey white paternalism ran wild. Okay, um, I'm not going to read anymore because this is horseshit. Granted, I haven't seen Green Book, but we talked about it on the show. Dustin reviewed it very, very uh, concisely, as he likes to say, concision. It's a movie about about how racism is bad. It's about how two men become friends despite one of them being a racist. <laughs> I mean, it's about the races coming together and finding common ground. That's what Pete Fairley actually said when he won the uh, um, um, Golden Globe Award for either Best Director or Best Picture. I think the Best Picture, of musical or comedy or whatever. Green Book won, and Peter Fairley went up there and said, I want to make a movie about finding common ground because I think that's what is sorely needed. I think that's what we can agree that we all need, and it's possible. He, he, you know, it's not about this person's right or this person's right. It's about finding what makes us common as human beings, and it should be really easy to do that in the age of the Internet, and, and, and despite, you know, despite what Wesley Morris says, we have come a long way Look at how things actually were when Driving Miss Daisy was made. Look at how things were in the in the period it's depicting. Green Book, you know, he's talking about well, how far, how much has things changed really. A fucking lot, dude. Green Book is a period piece. It might be made this year, and I'm sure the argument can be made like, oh, it really does reflect, real you know, race is still in the bad... Yeah, ra- race relations aren't great right now, but compared to pre-1963 shit night and god darn day man it, it makes me mad when i see things like this talking about like here's why you shouldn't enjoy these films that are good one green book's nominated for best picture it's not just a feel good saccharine movie it's a compelling story that the academy felt like deserved a nomination now, by my own logic, you know, take with that with a grain of salt if you choose. The point is, everyone I've heard talk about Green Book says it's good. Critics love it. Audiences love it. That's a good film. Period. This is like Arma, It's like reading an Armand White article. Like, oh, you can love Toy Story, but it's really just a bunch of product placement and uh, you know a sad statement about about how uh, consumerist we are as a nation. Oh, fuck off! It's a movie about growing up about moving on, about finding your purpose, about friendship, about family, sacrifice. It's about a lot of things. And you're fixated on this weird point of view that it's about product placement? Just because the characters are toys that actually fucking exist and you can buy? Are you out of your mind That's why Toy Story doesn't have a 100%. Toy Story 3 doesn't have a 100% of Rotten Tomatoes because of stuff like that. Narrow-mindedness like that. Narrow-mindedness that movies like Green Book discourage. Hey, don't be so narrow-minded. You know, we're not so different. Open your mind up a little bit. Be receptive to new ideas and new people. You might just find out that you like it and that we can be friends. And how much better that would be than holding on to your prejudices or staying on your team. This is the kind of shit that's holding us back. Okay. This is the kind of stuff that's holding us back from actually making progress and and retaining progress. You want to piss off white people? You do it with stuff like this. Okay. Everybody's trying to move on. Well, here's what people like, 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 God, what the hell is your name? Wesley Morris, but people like him and others out there don't realize is that everyone's ready to move on. And everyone sort of just keeps, we're all trying to leave the room, you know, flip off the light switch, leave the room. Like we're done in here, but someone always has to peek up in there, flip the switch back on, and go. Dad, did we get everything? Did we get everything? Let's let's just make a mess real quick so we can clean it up again. Because uh, you know, because once this room, once we leave this room, like I don't have a purpose. Not to get political, but people, I, I you know, just just to throw this out, just as an example, in case you aren't following me, people like Al Sharpton, I think, exist to stir the the pot with race tension, because if there is no racial tension. Al Sharpton serves no purpose. He has no te- His television show has no reason to exist. There are no problems to address. So there is a market, believe it or not, for racial tension. And I hate to say it, and I will accuse no other people of it, but the point is, I see plenty of examples out there of people who stand a profit from racial tension. I'm not saying Wesley Morris does. I'm not saying the New York Times does, although I'm sure people read a lot of articles about racial tension because I bet it sells newspapers. So that's the journalistic integrity I'm talking about. Is this about what the green book is really about, or is it just about spinning it into some um, race, uh, you know, race war propaganda just to keep things interesting. Isn't life interesting enough? Don't we have enough problems? Do we really need this? It's a good movie. Go see it. And you'll see that it has nothing to do with like, you know, whitewashing history or um, exploiting black people. Mahershala Ali freely entered into this contract <laughs> to start in this movie a load of shit. I don't even know where I am time-wise. I think I've been talking about 30 minutes or so. Woo! I need to wrap it up. Last article on the aforementioned Atlantic. Millennial burnout is being televised. How fire fraud and tidying up with Marie Kondo capture a precarious cultural movement. Um, if you don't know, there's this show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. It's on Netflix. Um, it's a reality series. And there's um, it features um, what's it, Marie Kondo, who is a Japanese um, um, uh, organizational consultant, um, who comes to your house and basically tells you how to be, you know, how to consolidate your possessions, how to decide what you should and shouldn't keep and how to organize the stuff you do keep. Um, so I was talking about a particular episode, um, with uh, this gay couple, Frank and Matt. Well, it says, it says a couple. I'm assuming they're a gay couple. (laughs) They're not just two roommates. It would say roommates, Living in West Hollywood. Yeah, they're a gay couple. So um, both writers, they have a touching love story. Oh, well, there you go. Um, involving Tinder, blah, blah, blah. They are in short, sorry, a too small apartment filled with de- uh, detritus, from, detritus from past roommates and a burning desire to prove their adulting bona fides. They are in short the archetypal millennial couple. Their dramatic hook of the episode is that Frank's parents are coming for to visit for the first time and Frank wants to impress them. Um, They want their home to reflect their identities and sense of self. Um, They've internalized the idea that the signifiers of success are are primarily visual. Um, If the viral success of tidying up with Marie Kondo is anything to go by, Frank and Matt, their exhaustion and their understanding that an adult adult existence is an optimized one, aren't anomalous in their anxieties. Kondo, a Japanese organizational consultant, has sold more than 11 million books in 40 countries since the publication of her magnum opus, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Um, more than, uh, da, 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 da. more than 192,000 Instagram pictures of color coded sock drawers and neatly labeled mesh containers now bear the hashtag KonMari hashtag. Thrift stores around the U.S. have reported record donation hauls as inspired Americans streamline their possessions. In barely three weeks, Kondo has gone from a best-selling author to a cultural juggernaut. In part, this is due to Netflix's prodigious reach, particularly among young millennials who are five times more likely to watch a show on the streaming service than access it via any other provider, but the success of tidying up also speaks to how neatly some episodes of the show sync with its cultural moment. A time in which identity and achievements are visual metrics to be publicly displayed and curated, and a happy home is a perfected, optimized one. Um So the article goes on to talk about essentially how being a millennial is marked by student debt preventing you from achieving the American dream, which, you know, is supposed to be house kids, four hundred one K, you know, whatever, retirement sort of thing. And um and somehow tidying up the Marie Kondo hammers that home. Um, this paragraph says, This conviction is why tidying up with the Marie Condo has drawn so many fans in such a short time, and why your feeds might suddenly be bloated with soaring piles of clothes and arguments about whether you whether to condo your books. Millennials have come to believe, Peterson writes, that personal spaces should be optimized just as much as one's self and career. But the conspicuous nature of Kamari also suggests a larger vacuum. Millennials don't just gravitate to Marie Kondo because they don't have apartments big enough to own things. When tidying up, what tidying up offers is both the counterpoint to the way they've been raised. Less is more versus more is always better. And an endorsement, the promise, at least as millennial culture seems to have interpreted it, is that if people work to organize their lives to look just right, the rest will follow. The performance of the self has become more important than the reality, even TV has noticed. Again, I think this is being over, overthought. The show is a good thing. It's a positive thing. My wife and I watched, uh, I've seen one episode of this show. And I'm not crazy about it, but I like it. Because what it does is it inspires people to be better. It inspires people to shed their material possessions, to declutter their houses, to make better use of the space they have. If your complaint is that people can't achieve the American dream because of student debt, well, the first thing that anyone will tell you about, hey, if you can't maximize your income, how do you become more financially independent? Well, you start to make better use of what you already have. So whether that's square footage or stuff you already own or free time or talents you can exploit for money or something but if you cannot control your in- input you control your output you use you know use the air conditioner less drive less get a bike eat better food um you know take shorter showers turn off the lights if it's daytime you know there are ways to 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 minimize your consumption and this show is along the lines of that where it's teaching Americans like hey um we are a very consumer obsessed culture but all this stuff in your garage that you don't need? Did you even remember it was here? This is somewhere between, you know, nothing and hoarders. Hoarders is about people who have a horrible problem keeping stuff. And it's manifested into like a health and safety problem. This isn't that. This is just people, regular Americans who have probably as much stuff as you. Because you can always watch hoarders and go, well, at least not that person. I should still clean though. This, These people on this show are you. They don't have a crap load of stuff, but a lot of what they own is junk or not being used or could be consolidated. So after she helps you, you know, pair out the clothes you're not actually wearing and you're keeping for no reason, um, she helps you organize what you do have. My drawers are better organized now because of the way she, the way we learned to fold our clothes. It looks cool. It's a little neat sushi rolled clothes. I love it. I got way more space, I got way more space in my closet for other stuff. Okay. I like it, and I never would have even thought to do it or been in the mindset. That's the thing. what's What's your gimmick? You think that I need to be in the mindset to be more minimalistic without being prompted? I got news for you. I'm lazy. I'm not doing anything unless someone makes me feel like I should do it, and I'm receptive to it. Everyone wants to be more efficient. Well, the show shows somebody who's going to tell you how to do it, and people like that. They just need a little push. And then they can improve their own lives. So for you to suggest that this is a bad thing, I think they have it all wrong here. the that the bill of goods that the uh, millennials have been sold is that if you make your life look perfect, like on Instagram, um, the rest will follow. Like they're saying that, obviously that's not the right thing. But it's like that. It's like this is what um, Marie Kondo is teaching people that as long as you look perfect, you are perfect. That's not what she's about. That's not what the show's about. It's about making better use of what you have and minimizing your attachment to things. When in the F did that become a bad thing? I mean, the, the back half of the show really has been about how the way things are in the culture, the way that they're spun to make you think. Like, just be honest with yourself. What do you actually think? Do you believe shit like this article? Or do you have your own opinion and do or do you like the thing? Just be honest with yourself. If you like the thing, why do you like it? Tell me why you like it. Can you explain why you like it? If you hate it, why do you hate it? Sometimes that's I just it's just not my thing. Okay, just because you don't like it, is it offensive and an affront to an entire culture? Probably not. If you love it, does someone not liking it an affront to you? No. No. Relax. I think a big problem these days is people think that they have to have a hot take on everything. Oh, yeah, well, it's actually, uh, you know, Green Books. Yeah, I'm glad everyone likes it, but I'm a contrarian. I want to argue. And so it's going to be about um, how we're still racist, kind of, even though the movie's about racism being uh, unequivocally bad. Meh, I argued. I'm important. Shut up. I'm here to tell you. I'm, I'm. I'm here to be a check on everyone's BS. That's stupid. Do you really believe that? And if you do, I've talked to people online before where I've been like, do you really believe that? And then they explain that they really do believe that. And At the end of it, all I can say is, oh, wow. No. Okay. I mean, I can't say they're wrong. It's their opinion. But I can say, yeah, that's not what it is for me at all. Just a movie about friendship. Within the context of racism. A friendship that was earned because it was harder to be friends if you're racist against the person who becomes your friend. You know? Someone makes a movie about me and Dustin becoming friends. We're a couple, you know, white dudes. Became friends in the late 2000s. What's working against our friendship? Nothing. Not a very interesting story. But, you know, uh, flip a coin. Who should be? Should Dustin be black? Should I be black? Okay, Dustin Dustin can be black. It's 1965. Dustin's black. I'm white. We go to college together. We, we room together. A lot more working against that that, that friendship. <laughs> Within the context of of you know a racially diverse cast, it's entirely relevant to the story. And then when I eventually become Dustin's friend, shows I'm not racist. Shows racism is bad. Everything's good, right? Okay, just checking. That's it. Stay tuned for the movie hour sometime this week. Maybe I'll drop another episode tomorrow night, but I probably won't. I'm gonna shower and go to bed. Finish this beer not in that order I will finish the beer before bed I do not advocate um beering while while asleep <laughs> um all right that's it for the uh the hooper daily show you guys have a good night see ya